One of the ways to turn your eyes upon Jesus and look full in his wonderful face and have the things of earth go dim is to die. There's another way you can watch Jesus and turn your eyes upon him, and that's what we'll do now for the next few minutes, and that is to open the Bible and to read portraits of his power and his love and his truth and righteousness. Now, Tim read these verses earlier as part of our worship, and now I want you to open to Hebrews chapter 10. And we're going to focus among these 18 verses on one verse and draw in the others as they are important to elucidate it. The verse is number 14 in Hebrews 10. But before I read it to you, let me warn you of what happens when you see the Lord on this earth before you're perfected like Gerda was in the twinkling of an eye. When Peter, you remember, saw the Lord simply say, put your nets on the other side of the boat. And they say, oh, we've done this all night long. And they dropped the nets according to the word of the Lord. And so many fish were caught that the boats were sinking. And Peter looks at the Lord and falls on his face and says, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. Isn't that an interesting response to a, a demonstration of gracious power? So you got to know that this is a risky thing you do. It's a wonderful thing you do. If you're willing to do it, to open your eyes and set your eyes upon Christ in his word, you might just wind up on your face feeling filthy and unworthy and saying to him, depart from me. That just might happen. And I'm, my, my conviction is that that's a wonderful thing to happen. Because most people, even in the church, I include myself here, a lot of the time are in a dreadful, deadly dream world of oblivion to the danger of sin and God's wrath and anger against sinners. Most of us go through life a lot more scared that that blinking light is after us. Oh, good, it's only an ambulance and whew, I was only doing, you know, 62 anyway. A lot of, we, we have much more emotional palpitations about being caught by a policeman than being in trouble with God Almighty for our sin. And therefore, it's a wonderful thing. It's a healthy thing if we get glimpses from time to time of Christ in His glory, in His majesty, in His holiness that make us go face down and say, I'm a sinner and what do you have to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? So, you got to know that might happen here and it would be a wonderful thing if God wakened you to your plight. Here in Hebrews um, 3, it says, quoting God, I was angry with this generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They did not know my ways, and I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. And so you got those two awful words. I am angry with this generation, and in my wrath I say to them, you will not enter heaven. The biggest problem that you have in the world 
and that everybody else has is God's anger against sinners. I was angry with this generation. And I said, they will not enter my rest. So it's a wonderful thing to experience what Peter experienced. And fall on your face and say, I'm a sinful man. Because then you wake up. The great danger of not having that experience is that you remain blind or oblivious to the very reality that can enable you to seek a remedy for sin. There's a remedy. And that can give you an escape from the wrath. There's an escape. God provided, this angry God provided an escape from His anger. Because He's also God of love. But to be oblivious to our condition is to miss it all. The bad news we don't get and the good news we don't get. So be aware. It's a little bit like, I was reminded of this because of Talitha this week. I came into the house. Noel was away on the retreat (coughs) with the wives. So I'm playing Mr. Mom for a few days with my sons. And it's great doing everything little baby needs to do. And one day I come in and I smell gas. This house is full of gas. Natural gas. And and I I went straight to the stove because she's done this before. She's just at the height where she can reach these knobs. She turned the gas on. I quick turn it off, open the door, don't light a match. And I thought this morning, yesterday, as I was right here in this point in the sermon, to be oblivious to that gas might result in the house being blown up and burned to the ground. And it's like being oblivious to the gas of sin. God's anger at sin. So if God meets you this morning, and if He reveals Christ to you this morning so that He's holy and beautiful and you feel dirty, that's good. And I'll show you the remedy before we're done. I'll show you the remedy for how to escape from that situation. So it's a good thing. It's a good thing to set our eyes on the Lord. Let's do it in verse 14. Let me just read it. It's a beautiful, short, powerful word. By this will. That's verse 10. Sorry, jumping ahead of myself here. Verse 14. Where is it? it? Uh, There it is. By one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. By one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Now, let's just clarify right off the bat three things. Number one, the word offering. Now we'll go to verse 10, the one that I jumped the gun on here. Verse 10 says, by this will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. So there's the explanation of what the offering is. This is not just any ordinary offering. This is Christ himself offering himself. How beautiful, how beautiful is the body of Christ. Second observation. The word he in verse 14. For by one offering, he. Now who's that? 
That's Christ. Jesus Christ, Son of God. We know that by just tracing the flow of thought from verse 13 on. Because in verse 13, it's Christ who's sitting down at the right hand of the Father, waits there triumphantly until he has put all of his enemies under his feet, and by one offering, he, that triumphant Christ, has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Now, one last clarification before we step back and look at the context. The tenses of these verbs is really important. And I I shared this with my sons and wife at the breakfast table, and they all went, oh, you got to talk about versions again this morning. I said, no, I don't want to. I don't want to talk about the NASB and the NIV. I just want to talk about the God says. But I got to. Because we've got to get this right. The whole point hangs on getting it right this morning. Now, the first verb, every version gets right. All right? It says, he has perfected, or yours may say, he has made perfect for all time. That's right. The tense is, it's done. He's done this. It's over for all time. So it is both completed and it's completed in such a way as to last forever. But when you get to the next verb, those who are sanctified, which is what the NASB says, and so does the RSB and the King James Version and Everyone except the NIV gets it exactly right this time. <laughs> they say that he has been, he has perfected for all time. The NIV says those who are being made holy. Now the tense of this verb is present tense in Greek and it is a progressive continuous action. And the problem with translating it, who are sanctified, sounds like it's done. It's over. Now, I don't think necessarily they mean to imply that, but in English, that's what it sounds like to me anyway. So the NIV, in putting the little word being, are being made holy or sanctified, show that it's a process. Sanctification in this verse is not something that's overdone, but it's a process. Because the tense is present continuous action tense in Greek. Okay, so we've just made three clarifications. The offering is the body of Christ. The he who's doing the perfecting is Christ himself. And it is, they have been perfected. It's finished. And they are being made holy or sanctified. Now let's step back. Just those clarifications. Now we want to see it in context. The 13 verses that lead up to this verse in chapter 10 are a complicated argument. I'm not going to go into it all. Don't have time. But I think we can sum it up and get the main point pretty easily. The main point is the Old Testament law prescribed multiple repeated sacrifices. And in doing that, the law made clear right in the very prescription the inadequacy of the prescription. Because had those sacrifices been adequate 
to cover my sin and perfect me and cleanse me, they'd stop. But the fact that they got to do it again and again and again, year by year, day by day, shows, well, yesterday's sacrifice is no good for today's sins, and so we better do this whole thing all over again. And God meant it to be that way. He meant the inadequacy of the law to be manifest in the law. Let's just, let me show it to you in verses 1 and 2, so you see it real clear for yourself. It says, the law, verse 1, the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come, that's a shadow, these animal sacrifices are a shadow of Christ's coming and blood, dying, and not the very form of the things, that law can never, by the same sacrifices year by year, which they offer continually, see what he's stressing, make perfect. It can never make perfect, which is what verse 14 is all about, Make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? The answer, yes, they would have ceased to be offered. So the point is, God set up a system in the Old Testament with the blood of bulls and goats and says right here in verse 4, the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sins. Now, God knew that. So he planned a system of handling sin that was deeply flawed. That's what the book of Hebrews is about. To show the superiority of Christ over the flawed system of the Old Testament. And the flaw is simply that these are animal sacrifices and shadows pointing to reality. And shadows don't save anybody. Reality saves. And then he gets down there to verses 5 to 8. And he quotes Psalm 40. And he points out that even in the Psalms, there was a recognition that God doesn't desire animal sacrifices. But what's he desire? He's given me a body. He's dug me an ear. He's called me to do his will. He sees in that a foreshadowing of the messianic entrance of God bodily into the world. And the first will of God in the law is replaced by the second will of God in Christ. And the inadequacy of his will to handle sins through animal sacrifices is put on the blood of Jesus. Look at verses 11 and 12. You can see the contrast. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. See that in verse 11? But, here's the great contrast. He, Christ, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, so he's contrasting one sacrifice with many and for all time with repeated sacrifices, sat down at the right hand of God. Now, notice the contrast. What is sat down contrast with in verse 11? Tell me. Stands daily. Every priest stands daily. Christ sat down. Now that's intentional. And the intention is you keep on standing because you got to keep on working. You got to keep on trying to get sin taken care of. Now when Christ comes into the world with a body, the beautiful body of Christ, and he lays it down in infinite value on the cross for sin, 
and he rises from the dead and goes to heaven, he sits down. And the meaning is real clear. Number one, that was a good work you did, and it's finished. Have a seat. Don't stay standing as though you got to go back and do more. Sit down. That's over. Second meaning, God says, I'm satisfied. So you can have the place of honor at my right hand. None of those priests will sit at my right hand. You sit at my right hand because your sacrifice was absolutely perfect and complete and once for all and covered everything that needs to be covered. Have a seat at my right hand. And the third meaning is that he's sitting there sovereign until all of his enemies are put under his feet. In other words, this work of redemption is so powerful and so complete that it secures triumph over every enemy that would come against it and try to make it come to naught. So at least those three meanings are there in the sitting down described in verse 12 and then repeated again in 13. Now let's come to verse 14. Set your eyes upon Jesus here. For by one offering, one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified or being made holy. Now I only have two brief points to make about this verse for your encouragement. Number one. Christ has perfected his people, and they are complete. You know, if we had planned it, Chuck, maybe we should do it. We should sing at the end, complete in thee. Don't you look and see if it's in the hymnal there. And if it's there, we'll sing it. Because these folks can stay all afternoon. It is finished. It's complete. That's what's being said here. Now, here's the, here's the problem. You gotta ask, do I never sin? You perfected people. Do I never have bad attitudes? Do I never raise my voice at my wife and children in a way that's sinful? Do I make no mistakes in my math at work or school? Do I ever get sick? And we're all sitting here thinking, what's this perfected stuff? By one offering, he has perfected for all time What does he mean? The answer is given in the next verses, 15 through 18. He takes his favorite passage in the Old Testament, Jeremiah 31, the New Covenant, and he unpacks our perfection in terms of the New Covenant, and he makes a beeline for the last sentence of the New Covenant, which he quotes in verses 17 and 18. It says... Their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. So here's my interpretation of verse 14 in view of the development of it in light of the new covenant. He's saying, 
When Christ died and bore the sins of his people, he took those sins and he put them away so decisively that when God looks upon his people, he does not impute to them any of their sins, neither past nor present nor tomorrow or the next day or the millisecond before you die if you have a bad thought. Those are gone. They are buried in the deepest sea. They are forgotten in this sense that he will never remember them as grounds of condemnation. He will never bring them up as means of indictment against the people of God. We are free, totally perfected before God in that he does not reckon any of our sins past, present, or future against us. So he develops this perfection here in these verses in terms of forgiveness and in terms of no longer calling them up against us. He doesn't count them against us. You know, if you try to if you if you have the kind of brain that likes to fit pieces of scripture together into a coherent whole, which is a a good kind of brain to have, I think, then you should be asking now, is that the doctrine of justification by faith? Because it's very interesting that the book of Hebrews does not develop the doctrine of justification by faith. One time, Abel is justified. We'll get to Abel. Abel is justified in chapter 11. But by and large, that truth and that reality that we love justification by faith is developed in his own language. I don't think Paul wrote this book. We don't know who wrote this book. I'd vote for Barnabas. I wrote a paper one time that argued Barnabas wrote this book. Origen said God only knows who wrote the book of Hebrews. Whoever wrote it is developing Pauline truth in his own language. And the language is, by one offering, he has perfected for all time. Understand, new covenant, you are forgiven and those sins are forgotten. That's the doctrine of justification in other language. Last point. Who is included among the perfected? The striking thing about this verse is that it makes crystal clear that the death of Jesus is designed and effectual for a certain group of people Not everybody. Not everybody is perfected in the atonement. Not everybody is in this group he has perfected for all time. And so your existential question now is, am I there? Is that me? Am I included in the number of those who stand free from guilt and no sin being imputed against me and perfect before a holy God so that I don't have to worry about that wrath you were talking about at the beginning? Now, who are they? And the answer is given in the next phrase, in the verse. By one offering, he has been perfected for all time. I'm sorry. By one offering, he has perfected for all time. Who? Those who are being sanctified. 
Now let me put this real provocatively and paradoxically. What it means is, what it says is almost, he has, it is over, he has perfected those who are being perfected. That, that's what it says. Or, I'll, I'll take the words right out of verse 10 this time, so that you can see the paradox is not just mine, it's there in verse 10 and 14. He has sanctified once and for all those who are being sanctified. He has made you perfectly holy and guaranteed the complete consummation if you are now being made holy. You remember how Paul said it in 1 Corinthians 5? He said to the church, this crummy sinful church of Corinth, cleanse out the old leaven because you are unleavened. Well, which am I? Have I got some old leaven in me that needs to be cleansed out? Or am I an unleavened loaf, pure before God? And he says, yes! Because of the mystery of the gospel and the power of Christ. So, here's the answer. Am I perfect? You say, ask yourself that question. Can I walk out of here this morning knowing what I did yesterday? Knowing the sexual junk of my teen years? Knowing my unfaithfulness to my wife? Knowing all the pornography I've got stashed away at home right now? Knowing I lied for five years in a row on my income tax? Can I walk out of here today and say without Lying, I am perfect. And the answer to that question is yes. But, here's how you can know whether you can do that. Are you right now among the number who knows you're a sinner? And because of the law being written, maybe at this very moment, For the first time, because of the law being written on your heart, you hate your sin. And out of that hatred for it, like Peter falling down on the ground before Jesus, you find yourself hearing the word of the Lord, Fear not, Peter. From now on, you will be fisher of men. And you've got this gracious hand of God lifting you up, turning you away from that sin, setting you on the process that is right here in this verse called being made holy. The evidence of whether you stand perfected before God this morning is not whether you are a good person now. It's whether you hate your badness and are on a trajectory of becoming good Now, here's a key phrase. By faith in future grace. And the reason I stick it in as a parenthesis here, even though it's not in the text, is because I've read the rest of the book. And in chapters 10 and 11 and 12 and 13, it's all about how you get sanctified. And it isn't, folks, by works. 
Sanctification is not, oh good, I have to get justified by faith, but then I've got to work hard to get sanctified because it says the sanctified are the ones who are going to be deemed perfect. That's not it. For example, chapter 11, verse 24, by faith, Moses did not count the treasures of Egypt something to be held on to. Remember David Yeager's sermon from last summer? But he looked to the reward and by faith embracing all that God was for him in the future, he could say no to the fleeting pleasures of sin. So the means by which we become sanctified is faith being satisfied with the superior pleasures of God, severing the root of the gnawing lurements of sin. And little by little, you're going to go home this afternoon and burn those books. I won't ask you to raise your hand. You're going to put a block in your email, in your uh, in your web. You're not going to do that anymore. Because God showed up this morning and wrote the law on your heart. And now, right now, many of you who didn't walk in this way feel disgust at your sin. And that's so good. And you're looking at this verse and you're right on the brink of wondering whether you can believe this. Perfect? Me? Perfected? By one offering, once for all, even the sins I will probably commit on Friday, covered. And I plead with you, believe that. Be among the number, now as we close, be among the number who hate sin and by faith turn from it and stumble along with the rest of us toward heaven, trusting this glorious statement that because of one offering, you are perfect before God. It's not there. Rats! Complete in thee, O blessed thought. I wish I knew it by heart. Let's stand for prayer. We'll sing it. We'll put it in the bulletin. Lord God, there are poems and there are songs and there is scripture and there are friends to minister to us this glorious truth that by a single offering we have been perfected. And now the evidence of it is that we hate our sin and we trust this glorious provision and we're setting our faces afresh right now toward newness. Lord, put this on the hearts of this people. And now the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you everlasting peace. And all the people said, Amen.